HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. When an icon and role model of food policy and food studies writes a memoir after writing more than a dozen nonfiction, policy-heavy books, you might expect it to be serious, even a little preachy. But you'd be wrong here. Marion Nestle's telling of her life story is juicy and delicious, eminently readable. And in addition to her own journey, it is a surprisingly candid social history about the difficulties of a serious professional woman in academia coming of age in the 50s and 60s. Married at 19? Really, Marion? She's quite a woman, and it is quite a tale. Let's hear from Marion Nessel about her memoir, Slow Quote. First of all, Marion, the book is such a revelation to me. <laughs> and... The book is called Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And it starts at the beginning of Marion Nestle, when Marion was Marion Zittel, or Zittel, I'm not sure, and takes us all the way up to now. And what's amazing to me is the confidence you acquired somewhere along the way that essentially unsurled all of the feminist issues of the day that you didn't even know were feminist issues. It's kind of incredible. I wondered if we could start by having you read a little piece from the beginning. Early in the book, something that's so revealing of the kind of childhood you had, and it is from the chapter, A Long Slow Start. It is in such a different voice than everything else I've read that you've written, and I loved it. 
All right, I'd be happy to. The section is titled My One Haven, Higley Hill. That was the summer camp I went to for several years. I say in the book, I should have been more curious about food because I knew what real food tasted like. I learned this at the one place I remember being happy, Higley Hill, the summer camp I went to in Vermont. Through Communist Party connections, my parents were friends with George and Bunny Granich, a couple who ran a small camp in upstate New York. But in the summer of 1946, George was dying of cancer, and they moved the camp to a Vermont farm purchased recently by his brother Max, who was called Manny, and his wife Grace. On the way back from that first cross-country trip to Los Angeles that I had taken with my parents, we stopped at the camp so that my parents could visit George. I liked being there so much that they went on to New York, leaving the friend I was traveling with and me at the camp for a couple of weeks. The farm occupied more than a hundred acres, with fields, woods, streams, and a pond. There were only a few other campers that first year, and the adults were preoccupied with caring for George. We kids were free to run wild. I loved Higley Hill, and I loved being away from my parents, but mostly I loved the food. Grace and Manny had lived in China for many years, and Grace knew how to stir-fry ingredients picked fresh from the large kitchen garden. If we campers were good, we got to pick the vegetables for dinner. When it was my turn to pick string beans, I bit into one. It was warm from the July sun, crisp and sweet, raised on canned vegetables as I had been. I had no idea that a string bean could taste anything like that. This was my vegetable epiphany. I've loved fresh vegetables and gardens ever since, and I now cherish the blueberries, raspberries, peaches, figs, tomatoes, and herbs growing in pots on my Manhattan terrace. I just love that for so many reasons, not the least of which that it was a communist summer camp. We called it. <laughs> Commie we camp. called it commie camp. Right. <laughs> and that you were a product of that whole environment. And also there's a kind of joyous quality where most of us who are used to you understand that you are a passionate person. You write often about science, often about government, often about media with a kind of dispassion, a kind of passionate dispassion that we have all come to know and love. Writing this book seems to have unleashed something different in you. That's how I read well, it. Is that true? Well, of course. It's a <laughs> memoir. It's personal. Um, it's not about politics in the same way that my other books uh, have been. The way I like to put it is I'm a nonfiction writer, and this is my first work of fiction. <laughs> it crosses into another genre because as uh, everybody explained to me when I said I'm writing a memoir. I wrote it to answer questions I get asked all the time about my personal life. And I wrote it because the pandemic made it impossible to write nonfiction that required research because I couldn't get into a library. Uh, but the first thing that I had to deal with was that this is not biography. This is a memoir. It's my memories of what happened in my life and the events that led to uh, who I am today, but it's not a biography and it, it blends, and my memory's not any better than anybody else's. So 
the issue of fact-checking was very important through all of this. It was very hard to do. But it is your personal narrative. So the fact-checking is fairly unimportant. It really doesn't matter whether you took biology at 3.30 in the afternoon or 4 o'clock. <laughs> it really doesn't matter at all. Right. It's how I remember taking biology. That was a different kind of writing for me, and in some ways very difficult, in some ways not. I had the time and the space to work on this. It was kind of fun. Got me through the pandemic. Well, but it's more than that. It's useful to everybody who's interested in you, interested in food. And also, it's a kind of incredible story. In a way, you are um, epitomizing, in your own way, the feminine mystique of that time. I was once in a place where I spent two days with Betty Friedan. And all of these women kept coming up to her and saying, some said, thank you so much. But there was a whole group of them that came up and said, you ruined my life. You ruined my life. You made me think there was something other than children and households and marriage. And I ended up with nothing but my career. And you've managed to synthesize for me in reading this, bring me back to that moment where somebody as fierce as you who really, a couple of phrases in the book where you basically say, yeah, I was used to being minimized. I was used to people assuming that I really had nothing much to offer. And how you overcame that and became the Marianne Nestle that I know is kind of amazing. When you look back on that, do you see yourself? Were you angrier than the, than the memoir makes you seem? No, I didn't have any anger. I wasn't allowed to be angry. My way of dealing with that level of frustration was to cry or just to completely fall apart. I'm one of those women from the 1950s and early 60s when Betty Friedan's book came out who was blown away by it. I was at that point married with small children. I was miserably unhappy crying all the time because my life was so constricted by children and by a marriage that wasn't a particularly exciting or interesting or happy marriage. And the book came as a revelation to me. And yeah, this is what women were supposed to do. I mean, I tell this story in the book about how my three closest friends in high school had as their lifetime ambition to marry a professor, doctor, and a rabbi, respectively. And they did. And I also got married at 19. That's what you did. You got married and you went to college because that was where you were going to meet your husband. And you got married as soon as you could. You had children as soon as you could. And I did all that. But it sure didn't work very well for me. And when Betty Friedan's book came out, yeah, it changed my life. That was in its way life-changing, although I didn't see it at the time. But at least I knew that when the time I finished graduate school, um, that I would have a job and could support myself and would not need a husband in order to support me and my children. I could do it myself. Um, that was sort of the beginning of the long journey to food politics, which is what I write about in the book, and which is why it's called Slow Cooked. It took me a long time. Some of, that, some of the pieces that, that you wrote about when you were in graduate school and the chairman said, well, you only got this fellowship because no men applied. Just resonated like a 10-pound brick for me. And yet, 
you found in yourself this incredible drive to become this excellent student working mother's hours, as they used to call it and still do, and did well and went on to this whole career. People write endlessly about the importance of a mentor, but you sure as heck didn't have one in the beginning. No. I really never had one in in the sense that you work in uh, an area in which somebody that you're working for keeps an eye out for you. I never had that. I was able at the worst moment in my life and career when I was being fired from the University of California. That's a great chapter. I mean, when I was being fired from my job at the University of California, San Francisco, and my marriage was breaking up at the same time, I at least had sense enough to go talk to somebody who gave me very, very good advice, life-changing advice. It was really terrific. This was Phil Lee, who was as close to a mentor as anybody I ever had. But I had to ask for it and certainly had no idea that you were supposed to have people in your life who were looking out for you. Uh, Made a big difference if you did have those kinds of people, but I never did. I think that it was in my character from the beginning to try to make the best of whatever situation I found myself in. Not to try to change it particularly, because I didn't think that changing it was possible. I grew up thinking that my options were extremely limited, and I couldn't really change them. I just had to make the best of whatever they were. And that's what I tried to do throughout everything that I was doing through graduate school, through my first job, through my second job, through my third job, until finally I landed at NYU, which seemed like dying and going to heaven. I've had a wonderful experience at NYU. It was just the right place for me. It was just the right time. And I had the kind of support there that I had never had before. But that was unexpected and seemed like an enormous stroke of luck and still does looking back on it. Well, when I read this and I see your fierceness as a a crusader, which you are, as a crusader with terrific footnotes and research, but you are a crusader and you are fierce. I wonder how long it took you to figure out how to direct it so that you were fierce, capable, but harbored no animosity? Well, I don't know. I never thought about that. (laughs) I don't know. It just happened gradually. It took a really, really long time. That's one of the messages, I think, of the book for somebody who's starting. One of the reasons I wrote it was I get asked all the time, how do I become you? How do I do what you do? I want to change the world through food. How do I do it? What should I study? You know, what kinds of experience should I have? And my answer to that is do what's fun for you because it really doesn't matter. There's no one path. One of the things about food is that it's very interdisciplinary. So it doesn't matter what discipline you approach it from. Um, All of them are useful. I did it my way and I certainly wouldn't expect anybody else to do it my way or take as long as I did. If you want a shortcut, you got to find your own way to that. So that's one of the messages, I think, in trying to answer those kinds of questions. I don't really know how to. I'm a product of my time and of my history, and I tried to do the best I could with it. 
And I think that was my goal always was, okay, this is the situation I'm presented with. What can I do with it? How can I make this situation work so I'm not miserably unhappy all the time? And certainly during the period when I was taking care of children, I had children to take care of. I had them to raise, and they were enormously important to me, and they were my first priority. They had to be my first priority. They weren't anybody else's first priority. They had to be mine. I was constrained by women's issues that were very common in those days. It was very common to be discriminated against at work, to have your colleagues being paid vastly more than you were, to be treated as if the work you were doing wasn't very important. And certainly once I got interested in food and nutrition, those are fields that are looked down on in the academy. It's very, very difficult to get food taken seriously as a serious academic discipline, although that's happening, something for which I'm enormously, feel enormously gratified that that's really happening. And you should take enormous credit. Oh, I'd love to. (laughs) I really would. We started food studies programs at NYU in 1996, and we were basically the only one except for Boston University at the time. And now there are 60 or 70 schools in the United States that teach one or another kind of program in food studies or, you know, maybe called something else. But basically every university and practically every department has a food class in it of one kind or another because people love studying about food. They just love it. I love it. That's been enormously gratifying. Well, astonishing and gratifying. I have to say that I opened the book expecting it to be, you know, two minutes on your your early days and then accolade after accolade, well-deserved. But I ended up threading through it, this real sense of you as, not as a product of your times, but as someone who broke out of the envelope of your times. And I was astonished by what a good and fast and exciting read it was. What kind of responses are you getting from people? We'll be back with Marian Nessel in a few minutes to talk more about her new memoir, Slow Cooked. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. And we are back with Marian Nessel. And I was astonished by what a good and fast and exciting read it was. What kind of responses are you getting from people? 
Well, I'm getting that response, which is enormously gratifying, that people are surprised at how easy and interesting it is to read. That's kind of nice. People react to it in different ways. The uh, Somebody asked me at a bookstore reading what my children thought of it. And they had never really said anything about it. And my son said, just tell them we like it fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's my son. And my daughter said, we're very proud of you. So that was really touching. I like that. And I've gotten a really nice note about it from an (laughs) ex-husband. A very, very nice note. I get notes from people about things that strike them about it. People relate to it in different ways. That's been very interesting to see the kinds of things that people respond to. Oh, this is just like my childhood. Or really, that happened to you too? It's so interesting that the theme of food carries through it. Or people just have their own their own way of looking at it. This is so different than any the responses to any of my other books. Um, well, it's so humanizing. Speak. It's just, it's so personal. You're already an icon, but icons, <laughs> icons are kind of things you can walk around 360 and say, great, this is incredibly humanizing. And I don't know, I found it moving. I underlined so many sentences, starting with... <laughs> starting with the sentences where you talk about your parents and what you thought about your father and how you felt this way and that you did really well in a course and you thought it was easy because you did well. Doesn't everybody do well in things that they're... (laughs) Your lack of... Your awareness of yourself, but your lack of introspection is kind of amazing throughout it. You just dove ahead like an ICBM, really, from one one thing to another. I had to. I mean, I didn't feel like I had choices. And the feeling that you don't have choices is very difficult to deal with. But that was certainly how I felt for most of my life, that I had made choices. Um, You know, I chose to get married at the age of 19. Did anybody tell you that that was a bad idea? No. No, that's what everybody was doing. I went to eight weddings that summer. Uh, Everybody was getting married at 19. That's what you did. And the, that's what you were supposed to do. And I was trying as hard as I could to conform. I had good instincts. And looking back, I can see that my instincts were for the kind of life I wanted to lead and a kind of life that would make me more interested and happier. I had good instincts for it. I just never thought it was possible. I can't resist telling the Stanford story because this is, you know, this is a memoir. You can't fact check memoirs. But in fact, a fact check just came in last week. One of the things I write about is that I had applied to Stanford as a long shot. I didn't have enough money to go, uh, but somehow I had the nerve to apply to it. And I went to a high school in an academic high school in Los Angeles, and four of us applied to Stanford. The only one of the four of us who got in was, as I put it, maybe by coincidence, the only one of us who was not Jewish. Last week, Stanford came out with a report on uh, how it had discriminated against Jewish students in two Los Angeles high schools, one of which was mine. 
because they had developed in 1953, the very year that I was applying to Stanford, a policy that they would not accept students from those two high schools because they had such a large proportion of Jewish students. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a fact check. So in fact, my comment on that turned out to be grounded in the reality of the time, that if you were a Jewish from those particular high schools in Los Angeles, I went to Fairfax, the other one was Beverly Hills High, you didn't have a very good chance of getting into prestigious private schools. I went to Berkeley which was the only other school I applied for, uh, which was, in a sense, my safety school because I had very good grades in high school and I was a California resident. I'm very glad I went to Berkeley. I have four degrees from it. It's kind of an incredible reminder of the times where you began. Just incredible to me. I really love this book. I didn't, as I said before, I didn't expect it to be quite so juicy and wonderful and fun to read. (laughs) But I recommend it to everybody because it's not only a fascinating portrait of an incredibly driven leader who really exploded the field. There's probably very little disagreement on that, the importance that you've been to the world of food studies and food policy and change. But it is also a fascinating portrait of the times that we sometimes fear is coming back upon us. I would imagine every young woman who's interested in food should really read this book. And I hope it comes out in paperback. I hope it gets to be assigned reading because it makes real to me the power of one. You were one person with your own complicated issues who was able to land on your feet, stay focused, not be particularly self-involved, and make all these incredible things happen. And we owe you a debt of gratitude. But there you are, a sort of unmasked as a human behind the icon. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you. And there is an audible version, and there's also an electronic version at University of California Press. This is my sixth book with University of California Press. I think it's their first memoir in the food and culture series. And they were a little um, baffled about how to deal with it. It went through a lot of editing. Well, whatever editing they did, it made it an incredibly smooth, exciting. I kept saying, I want to see how this all turns out. And I kept saying, wait, <laughs> you know how this all turns how out. It turned out. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it was that the kind of a book. Is- <laughs> I hoped it would be interesting for people to read, and it was interesting for me to write. He asked me, was it cathartic? Absolutely. Of course it was. It was looking back on my lifetime memories from the perspective of somebody who reads things very critically. In a sense, it's a critical evaluation of my own life and trying to understand and to make clear what you have to go through to have a life and that you can't always plan it. And sometimes the unplanned things are the interesting and exciting things and that you will have adversity and you have to deal with the adversity. And I tried to go through what for me were the most searing incidents in my life, the ones that really caught me up short and hurt or made me realize that what I thought I wanted to do was really not possible. 
what I called the swimming pool epiphany, for example, which was when I was at Brandeis University as a postdoctoral fellow in the biology department, my kids had a swimming lesson. And usually it was three quarters of an hour and I stayed with them one Saturday morning. It was a double lesson. And I thought, well, I'll just go to my lab and there won't be anybody there and I'll get some lab work done. And I walked into my lab and everybody was there. Absolutely everybody, the lab director, the lab technician, the graduate students, the other postdocs, everybody. I thought, okay, that's why everybody thinks I'm not getting any work done. Okay, that's why I'm not getting any work done. I can't be there on a Saturday morning. Who's going to take care of my kids? That was the end of my lab science career on that morning. Just like that. That was the end. I knew I couldn't do it. I just didn't have the kind of childcare support that I needed to go on with a lab career, even though I had options for continuing in the labs of people who later went on to win Nobel Prizes. Um, there was no way I could do that because I just didn't have those supporter resources. And so the reality was I needed to take a different kind of job. And of course, that led to a teaching job, which led to my being handed a nutrition course, which led to my getting interested in food and nutrition, which led to the current career. So hard to argue about that. It turned out okay. Or if you want to put it a different way, I made it turn out okay. You made it turn out okay. I always say to my daughters, they're tired of hearing this, there are no wrong decisions. Just each decision takes you down a different path. Right. And you only have one life. <laughs> you can't retrace those paths. If I look back on it, I think there are lots of different paths. Maybe I would have studied agricultural economics. Maybe I would have gone to medical school. Maybe I would have done other things if I had been a different person in a different circumstance. But these were the circumstances that I had to deal with, and I tried to make the best of them. And one of them worked, I have to say. That nutrition class led me on a path that turned out to be intellectually fascinating to me. I'm fascinated by nutrition and food. I really love it. It brings together a lot of my interests. It worked for me really well. Well, the book works for me. I loved reading it. <laughs> I've read many of your other books. I'm kind of a Marion Nestle groupie, as you know, and <laughs> I just loved it. And I heartily recommend it. It's called Slow Cooked. An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. It is by University of California Press. It's available as an ebook and an audible book. Well, congratulations to you. I just, I hope everybody reads this book. Marian Nessel, food icon and actual human being. <laughs> Thanks so much for this, Marian. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Love the book. You'll love it too. Slow cooked, ebook, hardcover, audiobook. Thank you, Marion. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>